This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Best bits from Thursday, January the 5th. And of course, it's Thursday, so we had our regular property advice for real with Hauser. Sarah Hewardine was kind enough to join us. She's the head of marketing for Hauser. Uh, she talked about big buildings. Uh, why Burj Khalifa celebrating its 13th anniversary uh, this week on Wednesday. Uh, what's the Burj Khalifa done for the housing market was one of the questions we had for Sarah. Are developers looking to invest in more uh, tall building structures here or has there been uh, a big old transition for people wanting to buy bigger plots, townhouse plots uh, and similar properties? Uh, Sarah gave her thoughts on the future of tall buildings here in the UAE. Uh, we also had the former head of Middle East Publishing at LexisNexis join us here in studio, Hussein Hadi. Hussein came in uh, to talk about a new piece of research from LexisNexis suggesting that a third of all lawyers could be working for a neo firm like Keystone Law or uh, Gunner Cook LLP by 2026. Made for an interesting chat uh, with Hussein's last day uh, here in the region at LexisNexis before he moves on to new roles. Ed Bell was also on hand to give his thoughts uh, on the latest announcement from His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, who has launched the Dubai Economic Agenda, otherwise known as the D33, uh, with total economic targets of around about 32 trillion dirhams. That's the target for the next 10 years. We wanted to get Ed's thoughts on the extensive um, vision, the directives, the initiatives announced overnight. Uh, plus, we looked at other announcements overnight. One from the United States, uh, from the Fed, suggesting that interest rates could go up yet again. Uh, in fact, they're not the only country to give warnings of interest rate hikes. And we wanted to know from uh, those in studio and other experts about what that actually meant uh, for the possibility of recession uh, not just in individual countries, but also globally as well. Uh, all that to come and more right here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, big focus on the Dubai plan today. We've been talking about um, IATA and their latest uh, comments with regards to China restrictions. Let's go stateside now because um, the are we seeing more rate rises in the United States? Uh, looks like it. We had the Fed minutes overnight. What's that? So middle of December, we had the latest Fed rate rise, 50 basis points. Fine. Then a couple of weeks later, they released the minutes of the meeting. So we found out what people said and what different arguments were voiced during the meetings. Federal Reserve officials, the message came out loud and clear. They are committed to fighting inflation and they expect higher interest rates to remain in place until more progress is made. And Ed Bell touched on this. People like me were hoping for a pivot hoping that, OK, 50 basis points, but the economy's weak, so maybe we'll stop. I was hoping for a pivot. I did not find one in these Fed minutes. To be fair, though, like the IATA statement, it does fall a bit into the category of, well, they have to say that, don't they? They want to bring down inflation. They need people's and companies' habits to change to do so. They're not going to say, OK, inflation is coming down, fill your boots, because it would have the opposite effect. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. So maybe Particularly on markets. 
Stock markets or currency markets? No, stock markets. If you look at what's happening with inflation in Europe, we've had two reports now of falling inflation. We had Germany going from about 11.7%, I think, um, to just under 10. They came in at about 9.6% for December. Uh, we've got a smaller drop, but the same trend coming out of France this morning. Both of those are on the back of lower energy bills. Um, we've got gas down at the pre-Russian invasion price. Um, we're pretty much at the, the sort of gas price that we saw last summer. That's what's helping with inflation falling in Europe. That and the fact that they're having a winter heat wave, which I did think of you and with love, your absolute disastrous track record of skiing holidays. <laughs> what happened at the last skiing holiday? Oh, I had lots of snow, but I broke my hand. This skiing holiday? No snow. No snow. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, it, it hasn't happened yet. We've got five weeks. But yeah, it is. Uh, we touched on this yesterday. One of the hottest summers in Europe for about 25 years. And many ski resorts are just shut at the moment because there ain't no snow. So it is that weather stroke energy um, picture that is changing things in Europe. And in fact, we've got the opposite in the UK. I was looking at credit card borrowing, soaring, food costs soaring. That's just two reports out in the last 24 hours. But it's kind of the Fed's job to tell people to a certain extent don't start partying yet. It's the punch bowl, isn't it? Well, it is. It, it is their job to be the party poopers. Let's hear from the boss. This is Jay Powell. Uh, just This is not him speaking last night when the minutes came out, but let's just remind ourselves what he had to say about interest rates back in December when that rate hike was announced. And as you can hear from his voice, he is very hawkish on rates. We continue to anticipate that ongoing increases in the target range for the federal funds rate will be appropriate in order to, to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. We are seeing the effects on demand in the most interest-sensitive se sectors of the economy, such as housing. It will take time, however, for the full effects of monetary restraint to be realized, especially on inflation. Myself and Janet, uh, not Janet Yellen, um, Elizabeth Warren, uh, hoping that that is just rhetoric, and in fact they are going to ease off on raising rates in 2023, but they're, they're talking a tough game. And, of course, it impacts us here in the UAE because uh, we take our interest rates. And, if, and I'm selfish here. I've got a mortgage here. It's gone through the flipping roof over the past 12 months. Make it stop. We, uh, who else is saying there's going to be? Uh, Alan Greenspan also uh, yeah. mentioned him last night. He gave a note last, uh, released a note uh, earlier on this week uh, believing a U.S. recession is the, quote, most likely outcome of the Fed's aggressive rate hike regime. Uh, minutes curb inflation. BlackRock yesterday, though, I think, had pretty much the opposite opinion on that. Um, so many opinions are available. But yes, I picked up the Alan Greenspan comments as well, given that he's held the job before and Don't, therefore presumably knows history, what he's talking he? about. <laughs> the 96-year-old. Been there, done that. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Right, let's get some more detail on the big economic story of the past 24 hours, the Dubai Economic Agenda D33. Details and analysis to come. But first of all, to get us in the mood, this was the rousing music that they used to announce it on social media. $32 trillion over the next 10 years, doubling the size of the economy. Joining us online now to give us some perspective is Senior Director Market Economics at Emirates MBD, Ed Bell. Morning, Ed. Good morning, Richard. What was your first impression of this plan? 
Well, I think it's an enormously uh, ambitious plan, but I think given the kind of time frame and the subsectors that have been targeted and some of the indicators that the Dubai government is looking out for, I mean, it does seem eminently achievable. And even if we don't get uh, the full amount that they're trying to target over the next 10 years, I think it does send a very strong message that there is a lot of support from the government coming towards the economy to help support very long-term sustainable growth for Dubai. I mean, to achieve doubling the economy in a decade, I mean, you, you can do the maths, you're the economist, but you're needing not double-digit growth rates every year, but almost double-digit growth rates every year. Have we been doing that of late? Can we do that going forward? Uh, no, not quite. So yeah, you would need sort of that 7 to 10% kind of increase per year, uh, really in the non-oil sector to allow um, the the economy in headline nominal GDP terms, if if that is a useful indicator really in, in any kind of economic sense anymore, to allow for a complete doubling. But I think when we look at things like uh, increasing the level of foreign trade, um, you know, expanding Dubai's foreign trade networks, um, expanding the role of private investment in the, in the UAE economy. All of these things will go a long way to helping support big term, uh, big long term growth to hit those targets. Well, let's look at trade in particular. You mentioned it there. I was looking at this. I mean, Dubai is still a relatively small economy. It's what two and a half, three, three and a half million people. The population probably isn't going to double over the next decade. So my sense is that if we're going to hit these trade targets, this will have to be Dubai as a transshipment hub, a trading hub, trade coming in and trade going out. What's your take? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, I mean, Dubai is a you know relatively small population, but let's say highly productive in terms of the kind of GDP per person per capita. Uh, but it's surrounded by some very large and some potentially very rapid growing economies. So to kind of piggyback on the work in that have been done in things like logistics, in airline travel linking Dubai and, and the region around it, Africa, Asia, the rest of the Middle East, the logistics around uh, transshipment of goods. I think those are all the sectors that can be expanded and enhanced and seem to be um, pulled out from the economic agenda that we saw yesterday, seeing in particular Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, and interestingly Latin America uh, as other, sec- other, other geographies that the U.S. Want, or Dubai, pardon me, wants to um, connect is part of this long-term strategy. So I think trade is the big sort of cornerstone takeaway from a, uh, let's say, economics textbook uh, point of view from the agenda that was released yesterday. One of Sheikh Mohammed's goals is foreign direct investment, attract FDI that exceeds 700 billion dirhams within 10 years. And I get that. And Dubai's done very well at that over the past few decades. It's been the destination of choice in many ways for foreign direct investment. But Abu Dhabi will have something to say about that. They want to attract foreign direct investment. And our neighbours in Saudi Arabia will definitely have something to say about that. Talk to me about the competition for FDI in this region now. Yeah, it is certainly, I think, enhanced in the last couple of years from the changes and the reforms that we've seen in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and it's a, a matter of, I suppose, carrot and stick. So who's offering the most incentives to be able to set up in your domestic jurisdiction for FDI that can support the region? I think what what, you know, from an economics point of view, what we would like to see avoided is unnecessary duplication. So you don't have regional headquarters of international firms in every city in the Middle East. That's really not kind of necessary. Better to localize and get one um, up and running with a good economies of scale that can service the rest of the region. Um, but I think 
Dubai benefits from kind of having that first mover advantage. It's a relatively known entity for a lot of big international firms. It's kind of hard to think of uh, a big company that doesn't have some sort of presence here in the Emirate. Uh, so that will help going forward that it is sort of a, uh, in a way, a known or perhaps a lower risk idea for a company that's looking to set up uh, a regional headquarters in the region. What about these 100 transformative projects that have been talked about? I'm guessing these are things on the scale of Jebel Ali Port, on the scale of Expo, that kind of scale, on on the scale of creating Dubai International Financial Centre. What's your understanding? Yeah, there does also seem to be some backing up with the idea to uh, sort of expand the livability of the city as well. So it's not really new to us that Dubai can create new neighborhoods uh, relatively rapidly, new economic centers. We saw around the the expo site and the areas around the um, the new airport, Maktoum Airport. Uh, so we'd expect to see more of that kind of uh, development happening further inland in Dubai and really helping to set up in a way the kind of um, the kind of hardcore infrastructure of housing, roads, utilities, all that kind of stuff that goes to help support the population growth that will meet the economic objectives that are outlined for the next 10 years. In terms of of potential risks to this strategy, and of course, as economists, you and the team will be looking at that, what do you think would be the major risk factors that could not, not derail this scheme, but that could create some roadblocks or bottlenecks? Yeah, I think it, it probably in the very short term, it's it's when it's being announced, just as the world economy is going into a phase where it's probably a bit more of a hunkering down, uh, a recession potentially developing in many economies. Um, the ability to generate or to to raise capital for this kind of these kind of schemes could be a little bit trickier, particularly as it's also going to be higher cost capital at this time. Um, that being said, I think there is still a pretty good long term sustainable growth strategy for Dubai in place that should remain quite attractive uh, to be able to finance projects like this. So I think sourcing the financing is always going to be one of the key um, issues or key uncertainties or perhaps even risks going forward in a project like this. Uh, finally, talking about the rising cost of capital, can't let you go, Ed, without a quick take on the Fed minutes that came out last night. What does that mean for interest rates going forward? It does look like we're still going to be going higher. The Fed was in no mood to uh, be accommodating towards investor concerns. They think the inflation story is still the number one um, objective for the Fed to target this year. So we have a Fed meeting in a couple of weeks. 25 basis points had been the expectation uh, of, in terms of a hike for the uh, end of January, early February meeting. It looks like that might be now creeping up to another 50 basis point hike. But it really doesn't show that we're anywhere near the Fed uh, preparing to turn softer or easier in terms of policy. Ed Bell, Senior Director, Market Economics, Emirates, MBD. Thank you. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Well, we are looking at a new study now that suggests a third of lawyers want to change the way they work and the type of firm that they work for. We are joined on his last day at work for the company that produced this report by Hussein Hadi. He's a faculty member of the Legal Technology and Innovation Institute. He's a lecturer with the government of Dubai Legal Affairs Department. And for 24 hours only, he is the head of Middle East Publishing and Technology at LexisNexis Middle East. Hussein, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And what an excellent way to start the last day at your former career. It's a great way to go. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. So this LexisNexis report suggests that one in three lawyers, and it was done in the UK, actually don't want to be salaried partners. They want to be legal consultants, possibly working for a neo firm. What do we actually mean by that? 
Well, look, uh, if you look at the traditional law firm model, you have your paralegals, your junior associates. And then as you move up the pyramid, you become an associate, you become a senior associate, and eventually you become a partner, and you will get a share of the revenue. And that's the way it's worked for a long time. It's the, the traditional law firm model. But a lot of people are seeing something that's a bit more uh, flexible. Um, you know, the trends we were seeing pre-COVID uh, have been accelerated in this post-COVID world. People are looking for hybrid working, more flexible working. So this new type of law firms are saying, do you know what? Uh, you can work with us on a flexible basis. Um, you won't have this huge hourly billing target that the tr traditional law firm has. Um, you can work from home more. Um, you can take a share of the revenue. So some of these, some of these new firms are saying, um, look, you're effectively under our umbrella. You will take a 70% uh, share of revenue and we'll take 30%. Why would someone want to do that? I mean, I'm looking at the salaries that Cooper Fitch published just a couple of weeks ago when it comes to legal professionals here in the UAE. And they are putting being a partner in a private practice, depending on how much experience you have, between 100,000 um, and 230,000. Now, um, that is dirhams and that is per month. <laughs> No, look, at, at, the, at the end of the day, it's a very lucrative profession. And, you know, once you've finished your training contract and you're two years, three years pre, uh, post-qualified, um, you can earn a lot. But it's also a very cutthroat. Um, it's a cutthroat market. I mean, a lot of these lawyers are working till 9, 10 p.m. I mean, a lot of the what we call big law, the, the established international law firms, it's uh, you, you work hard for your money. You, you know, you're working late hours and you have very aggressive billing targets. You're like, you know, you'll be expected to bring in one and a half million dollars of uh, billable hours per year. That's a lot of pressure. And for some people, despite the fact that you're earning a great salary, it's very difficult to reconcile with a family life. That work-life balance is increasing, become more important. Perhaps you want to work from home. You don't want that traditional uh, cutthroat environment. Is the traditional billing model fundamentally broken? Is it fundamentally flawed? I mean, look, there's been pressure on the, on the hourly billing model and people have been, uh, been announcing its death for many years now. It's still going strong, but clients are asking for more. Because one problem with the hourly billing model is that it doesn't encourage efficiency. You're not being rewarded for being more efficient. Um, but with the onset of new technology, um, the, the demands for more for less, people are asking law firms for more. They're saying, can you uh, come up with better solutions to help me solve business problems? So there is pressure now. You're looking at contingency fees, fixed fees. So there is that change, and that's slowly happening. But the hourly billing model is not dead yet, but it's under pressure. Does it encourage lawyers to be creative in the amount of hours they bill for? I mean, this this is the challenge. A lot of clients want consistency. They want to see how are you charging this? Um, you know, I, I remember back in 2013, um, there were Kia Motors instituted a legal tech proficiency test. They want to make sure that any law firm that takes their business is proficient in using basic technology so that you can be sure that you're being charged for that high level work and not that low level uh, sort of work. Okay, so a third of the lawyers surveyed here want to work for one of these legal service providers, one of these fractional companies, revenue sharing firms. Wanting to is one thing. Are they already doing it? Are we seeing the shift? Um, we've seen 
uh, the emergence of these new type of firms. So you have, for example, alternative legal service providers that say, you know what, we are not simply doing the hourly billing model. We don't have these big expensive offices. We use technology. We can charge lower rates. We can take that low-level commoditized work from you. You have what you might call new law. They're saying, you know what, we use technology. We're more virtual. Um, we can work in a more agile way, in a more flexible way. So you've seen the emergence of a lot of these type of firms, such as Keystone Law. In the Middle East, you've got the bench. You've got support legal. You've got mezzle law. So there's this new emergence, and it's been happening uh, over a number of years now, of these alternative legal service providers, these new law firms that are more agile, more technology-driven, and more flexible in their approach. Yeah, I mean, we had one start up the other month. I think Georgia interviewed them on the agenda, Oryx. Are lawyers physically moving to them, though? Are we seeing a, a sea change? Are we seeing people leave the big traditional firms? We are starting to see that. Now, I think um, these these new type of firms, they're not competing with the bigger law firms on revenue. At the end of the day, there's a, a depth and breadth of expertise and specialism, especially on big ticket work, that these international big law firms will continue to work. I think at that mid to low level, that's where these other providers are providing competition. But I think big law firms are starting to worry about this, you know, like um, that 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 uh, war on talent. How can they retain people? And they have responded. I think law firms are forcing themselves to provide more flexible working hours. A recent survey we did locally shows that of the law firms in the UAE, most of them are doing a hybrid model, 60% in the office, 40% working from home. So we are seeing that shift, um, but it's still early days. But I, you know, it's quite a bold prediction, but I, we are seeing that. We are seeing people move for that better life-work balance. When we were interviewing some of the first fixed-fee law firms that set up, they were largely catering to startups, to smaller companies who couldn't afford a ticking billing clock, if you like. Are the big clients following now? Are the Fortune 500 companies using this model? It's a good question. They are, they are starting to, um, you know, if you look at their portfolio of law firms, they're starting to open the door to alternative legal service providers, Axiom, etc. Because one of the attractive thing about the way that these new law firms work is that you have lawyers on demand. Um, let's say as an in-house legal team, I only need to upscale for a big project or a period of two months. I don't necessarily want to go and, and, and be billed. I want to have someone seconded to me. I want to have a um, boost to my team over a temporary period. And these new law firms are well-placed to do that. However, big law is responding. They're having outsourcing units, legal tech units, so they are responding slowly but surely. Prediction for 2023 in terms of, of this profession? What, 30 seconds, what will we see here? Uh, what we're seeing here is a demand for more hybrid, more flexible working. Uh, clients expect people to use technology. They want more consistency from their law firms and they want transparency. So it, we're essentially talking about a technology-driven world where there is flexibility um, and there's consistency. Hussein Hadi in his last day as head of Middle East Publishing and Technology at LexisNexis Middle East, also faculty member of the Legal Technology and Innovation Institute and a lecturer with the Government of Dubai Legal Affairs team. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Time to get your property questions in. Thank you very much indeed for those that have uh, sent theirs already. Get them in. Text on 4001, WhatsApp 04871 uh, Head of Marketing from Hauser joining us live in the studio, Sarah Hewardin. Sarah, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Good morning. All good? All good, all good. Hitting the floor running for 2023? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, continuing the good work from 22? Definitely. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk all things tall towers in just a few moments, or tall buildings uh, in 
in just a few moments. Uh, but before that, I mean, the reason we're doing that is because yesterday was the 13th anniversary of the Burj Khalifa's inauguration, uh, therefore becoming the world's tallest building and a global landmark. Still the world's tallest building, is it or not? It is, isn't it? At the it moment, is. it is, yes. Uh, before we move on to the Burj itself, just the impact that the Burj Khalifa had on the property industry here as a whole. Has it helped to promote property here? 100%, yeah. I think it's definitely put light on uh, Dubai and put a lot of light on Dubai real estate. And especially when you look at that downtown district and a lot of the new builds we've seen, it's really like an iconic landmark. And a lot of people, when you look in downtown, you pay a lot more for a Burj Khalifa view, for example, than just a downtown view. So I think it put Dubai on the map all those years ago. And I think it still has such a big impact on real estate here, especially downtown. With specifics to Burj Khalifa itself, though, I mean, has it, did it sell out? Has it ever sold out? How, what, how do, what's the movement of property like within the Burj? Yeah, so within the Burj Khalifa, there's 900 units available. Um, of those 900 units, even last year, 10% of those transacted. So that was about 95 transactions. So transaction volumes are very healthy. But when you look back to pre-COVID levels before 2019, there's only about 30 transactions every single year for Burj Khalifa. So they've tripled since COVID, which again, lends itself to what we know about the market and the high activity we're seeing. But when you look at the volume of those transactions, the value of those transactions year on year, let's say 2021 to 2022, they're up about 16%. Mm. So there's a high movement, but you've also definitely seen those price increases in the Burj Khalifa as well. If you and I went down there later on this afternoon, would there be something available to buy? Yes. There would? Yeah. And it varies. Anything from studios to one bedroom to two bedrooms, there definitely is stock available. And it's just moving quickly. Landlords that have held those units maybe like five, seven, ten years Sometimes they're wanting to move. Sometimes they're wanting to transact and they're ready to sell because the market's done so well. But even away from that, just end users moving in there, there's still activity happening and there's still units available. Let's talk tall buildings. Look, we just have to look out from where we're broadcasting at the moment. And in fact, it is a double Burj day for us as well. You can see the Arab <laughs> and the Khalifa oh, yes. on the same day. So it's a nice clear day, uh, but no shortage of tall residential buildings, which come with their own challenges as well. I know that uh, in terms of urban planning, that, of course, has been one of the sort of go-tos uh, for recent generations. However, we look at the recent COVID lockdowns. Before that, we've had problems with cladding and fires, etc. Um, in terms of the attraction of tall residential buildings, are they still holding firm here at the moment? They are. I think you have to look at it from a different lens because a lot of the tall buildings we have are older stocks. Yeah. These are builds that came in 2012, 2013. So... They're still attractive. I think they lend themselves very well to a tenant's market. When you've just moved here, you want your gym in your building, your pool in your building. You want to be able to easily access a supermarket. So just living in high-rise apartments does lend itself to that. And I think it also lends itself well to people moving to Dubai and wanting to live in a high-rise building and having that experience. But, you know, it is important to look at holistically, like Dubai compared to high-rise buildings. Do they perform particularly different to other buildings of the same stock? No, they don't. Dubai Marina, still the go-to? Yeah, so Dubai Marina has top four highest residential buildings in the world. So you've got Princess, you've got Torch, you've got Elite, and you've got 23 Marina. So you have that cluster of buildings that are high-rise, um, but you've also got some new stock coming to the market as well. So if you look at Seal Tower, which is a hotel residence that's due to be handed over in a couple of years in Marina, you've also got Il Primo in downtown. So there are a few more um, being introduced to the market. Are we see the volume of tall buildings coming like we did in 2012? No, we're not in terms of the supply coming. And I think when you look at 
a developing you know market like Dubai we have a lot of land available to build on and construct on yet we do still continue to build tall towers because there is a bit of a demand there but when you look at cities like New York for example they have no choice but to build up we have the choice to build out but we do still continue to build up because people want that type of lifestyle. So what will developers doing or what's the trend for developers we know that because of Covid lockdowns everyone abandoned their balconies they wanted backyards instead and yet we're seeing a bit of a re-migration back to high rises now as well. Moving forward for developers, what do you go for? Villa communities, townhouse communities or high rises? I think it's a um, a lot of the communities we see being introduced, they're multi-purpose. So you've got a combination of villas and apartments and there's demand on both sides. I think villas are still in very short supply, especially when we look at population increases and the type of demand that's coming in. And we need more villa supply to enter the market. But the reason why apartments have done so well recently is because the prices in the villa market have driven up tremendously and mm. apartments haven't. So I think as well, when you look at as a landlord or an investor, an apartment apartment is always a very strong choice. You, you don't have to worry about as much upkeep and maintenance. Um, it's definitely going to have a higher yield if it's located in, say, Marina or downtown. So I think in terms of the attractiveness of apartments, it does remain there. Who's living in them? In the apartments, yeah. it varies. Again, you've got families. You also have single singles, couples. Um, and when you look at the types of demographic, it is very similar to the type of influx we've seen from Westerners. So we've had a lot of Europeans come in, a lot of English and even Americans as well. Location, 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 the old statement address. Is that still a thing as well, especially when it comes to apartments? Yeah, definitely. And I think, again, that lends itself to why we build up and why we're building in those areas like Dubai and downtown is... The more units you can condense in that area, the more people can have that statement address and have that type of lifestyle and that Instagram shot of above the clouds. So I think that uh, there's definitely that attractiveness there. But is that if you're spending big money for and we've talked already haven't we, about penthouses and the mm. sort of uh, the, 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 the proliferance of penthouses here and the demand for penthouses and luxury apartments and those sort of things. I mean, one of the things that comes with that is accessibility. If there's a lot of demand for those, obviously traffic's getting more busy to get into the building, parking spaces is becoming more premium, but equally the time it takes to get from the ground floor to above the clouds takes a long time. Does that come into the reckoning or not? I mean, I'm sure it does, but I think that's a compromise. Most people are willing to take an extra five minutes to commute up to your apartment building. Um, but on the rental All market, adds up there. it does add up. It does add up 10 minutes a day. Um, but when What's you look that? at the rental market... It's an hour a week. <laughs> Says the man who lives in Hatter. <laughs> Uh, But when you do look at the rental market itself and you look at the prices people are charging for tall high rise there's no difference between a high rise building and another building rent prices in marina and downtown are at 2014 peaks but these tall buildings are still 10 percent below those peaks because they're older stock so you're bound to find that in the market quick question from tom we've got what about 30 seconds left uh sarah time to buy or wait until after q1 2023 i'd be buying now 100 especially if interest rates are going to be going up again rental market is not going to slow down i would most definitely be buying as long as you're going to be here and commit to hold for five years it's a good time to buy can't thank you enough for joining us good to have you here uh, for the first of our shows in 2023 uh, for now though sarah for all the all the team down here at business breakfast thank you very much and happy new year happy new year thanks for having me you've been listening to a dubai i 103.8 podcast to enjoy lots more from dubai i in the united arab emirates just go to dubai i 1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts <laughs>